It's the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft. That's me. There's lots to unpack today, from January 6th and the commission hearings to the hearings on Watergate. We tie a bow on all of it. The summer edition of the January 6th committee meetings have just uh, wrapped up, but of course they're coming back in the fall in order to make an impact on the midterm elections. That's not a coincidence. They're doing it on purpose to enforce maximum pain on Donald Trump. That's how bad Liz Cheney wants to get this guy. It's amazing. That's the way they've planned it. Just as they've planned all kinds of things at this hearing about January 6th, the worst day in American history, worse than Pearl Harbor, some of these people have said. People who should know better, people who are in Congress. Well, the hearings featured no exculpatory information, no cross-examination, no say in the way the evidence was presented and introduced. I read here from a piece I just did at PJ Media. There was no pushback because the novel small committee was selected personally by Nancy Pelosi, which is generally against their own rules. And she refused to build out the membership of the committee to its agreed upon 13 members. And then she rejected her Republican counterparts committee choices because of their effectiveness, like Jim Jordan. Pelosi even chose the two nominally GOP Trump hating members. I say nominally GOP. Does anyone (laughs) you think of Adam Kinzinger, you think of him crying and Liz Cheney, you think of her out to destroy Donald Trump. She hates Donald Trump. Got it. A lot of people hate Donald Trump. She's just very open about it, and she's in control of this committee. Sure, she's the co-chair, but in the last meeting, the actual chair of the committee, hand-selected by Nancy Pelosi, of course, Benny King, or Benny, sorry, Benny King's a musician, Benny Thompson, (laughs) she was, uh, Benny was over there reading a teleprompter from afar because he was, you know, tested positive for COVID, and Lynn Cheney and all the other people, the other, what, four people on the committee when there's like only six uh, was reading off a teleprompter for their Hollywood production in the special hearing room. Anyway, Pelosi's moves such as denying Trump's request for National Guardsmen to be placed around the Capitol building in advance were never allowed to be investigated. Her moves are not allowed to be investigated by this committee. Capitol building advanced people. They said, Hey, we, you know, we expect some trouble And Trump gave the approval for, I think it was 10,000, maybe 20,000 National Guards persons to be employed, deployed rather, there. Well, that's always been off limits as a discussion matter. And in fact, now Liz Cheney's out saying that Donald Trump never ordered the National Guard. Well, that's obvious hokum. I mean, Muriel Bowser, the mayor of the District of Columbia, turned down Donald Trump. Trump's request for National Guards persons to secure the Capitol before January 6th. Now, I just want to, does that look like an insurrection to you? Somebody who wants to prevent people from breaking in? Yeah, exactly. You know why? Probably that he wanted them is because he expected Antifa to show up. Who were the chaos agents? Agents provocateur which they were there that day. I'm not saying that they started everything. I think there are a lot of questions that this panel has not answered and will never get the answers to. Where's the the committee's presentation of evidence about agents provocateur, about the response by the Capitol Police, about throwing flashbags on people who were not rioting, who 
likely caused the deaths of two men that day. And of course, Ashley Babbitt was shot. Another woman was uh, overcome by CS gas. She was suffocated and she was trampled to death. These were all things that are arguably, I say arguably because nobody's investigated them because nobody wants to know what happened on January 6th to people who just showed up. Um, like it or hate it. I, at the time, of course, thought it was deplorable and indeed still do. So these are questions that will never be answered in this hearing. And, you know, throughout this entire Russian collusion hoax, through the entire let's get Trump alpha bank, let's make it up. Let's put the entire institutions of government in the service of this hoax, these hoaxes. Now, you may be surprised to learn and I don't blame you because it didn't make big news. <laughs> During the uh, Michael Sussman trial, we learned that it was this Russia collusion, Alpha Bank, all this other stuff. This These were made up and they came from the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2016. Actually, it was before she was up and running before that. And they started this hoax. And the CIA knew it was a hoax. And the FBI agents knew it was a hoax. And guess what? They kept investigating They knew it was a hoax just to smear Trump. Now, I mean, you can not like somebody, but you can tell the truth about him. I don't like him. But if you think Trump's actions on January 6th after the violence broke out was unacceptable and many people believe his silence was deafening for too many hours, imagine how bad it is when grown adults who wear congressional pins intentionally leave out information that would provide another way of looking at things. Exculpatory information is not allowed. Questioning these clearly trained witnesses that a young former White House aide was case in point. Well, wait, wait a minute now. So she doesn't say any of this in any of the previous four interviews you had with her and now changes her attorney to one of Washington's favorite liberal attorneys, and all of a sudden she's in front of the J6 committee, a special meeting, and everything she said has been debunked, but but she changed her story. This is chicanery. Can you hear the, can you hear the geese outside? <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, every day, and I have to chase them off my lawn. Oh, well. Anyway, so all throughout this this whole Trump thing, the Russia collusion, all of it. I've thought to myself, you know, if they pulled this off against Trump, what did they do against Richard Nixon? Now, full disclosure, I was a docent at the Richard Nixon Library, and um, I always responded with, well, you know, somebody's got to do it. And Uh, Of course, I came up during Watergate. I watched the Watergate hearings in the summer of, I think it was 1974. I watched those as a kid. I I, I know, I had no life. But there have been so many times I've wondered, what what kind of stuff like this did they pull in the Watergate hearings and investigations? I've never read anything about that. Oh, until Jeff Shepard came along. Shepard was a young attorney in the Nixon White House. He watched the fallout from the break-in at the Watergate knew the reasons behind the Pentagon Papers scandal, and John Dean's orchestrated cover-ups from the White House. So in 2015, he wrote the book, The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot That Brought Nixon Down. He did that in 2015, and I can remember him lecturing at the Nixon Library. 
And so I went, you know, I went to see him and got his book and everything. And it was just a real eye opener. And it's for those people who have come up and are adults in the room and go, oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. He's seen documents and covered information no one else has seen. He goes to the sources of the information. You know, the guys that retire or die and leave their papers to the university. And these are people who are major players in the Watergate hearings. And it is astonishing all of the things he has come up with. Or maybe it isn't astonishing. Maybe it isn't. In 2021, Jeff Shepard wrote The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate, and the Plot to Remove the President. He'd uncovered even more information and found out that the smoking gun tape in Nixon's office wasn't. Wow. Besides being an attorney and author, he's dedicated the rest of his adult life to the study of the legal documents that he's uncovered. Ex parte meetings between Watergate investigators and judges. They were illegal. Phonied up evidence. And the dog and pony show that were the Watergate hearings that beguiled the country and me as a young tyke all those years ago. Now, does that sound familiar? Enjoy part one of my discussion with Jeff Shepard, and prepare yourself to be shocked. June 17th marked the 50th anniversary of the break-in of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate Hotel and the office complex there. But what really happened? Jeff Shepard was a young attorney in the Nixon White House, He has done more to uncover the other untold story of Watergate than any other person, period. Shepard's books are The Nixon Conspiracy, The Real Watergate Scandal, and The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President, and he's written multiple articles, hundreds of them, over the years. But with the 50th anniversary into the break-in of the Watergate and Jeff Shepard being left conspicuously absent from this big celebration by journalists about how wonderful they are, how courageous they are, and how brave they are, I thought of him and I thought, you know, I'd seen him lecture at the Nixon Library after the real Watergate scandal book, and I thought, now there's a side of Watergate I'd never heard before, and I wanted to have him back because in light of all of the things that we have seen just right in front of our faces with respect to what happened uh, when a the institutions of the United States government and a political party uh, having these institutions work in their service arrayed against a president, you think to yourself, gee, I, I think I'd like to go back on Watergate and see what really happened there. And uh, too late, Jeff's already done it. So thank you so much for coming on the Adult in the Room podcast with Victoria Taft, Jeff Shepard. So let me ask you, For many political outsiders, Watergate was perceived and the follow-up was perceived as uh, so far-fetched, so unimaginable. And I think people, when they hear your story, they're going to say, I get it now because, and the only reason they get it now is because they saw what happened to Donald Trump and uh, the FBI spying on the White House, CIA, Russian spies in the FISA court, all being put into the service of the Democratic Party. Do you think that this, you know, awful thing that happened to Trump has actually opened the doors and opened the eyes of people about Watergate 50 years hence? 
Well, I think so, Victoria, and, and thank you for having me on uh, to hear my side of the story. The mainstream media doesn't particularly like my side of the story because it disrupts and is so inconsistent with their narrative. Uh, but there are lots of parallels. Mark Twain once said that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yes. And what strikes me as really interesting is many of the same issues that we see today were started in uh, in Watergate. Now, we didn't have the terms like deep state or fake news or narrative back then, but those things all existed. We, we, we called it the federal bureaucracy. We called it uh, the, the uh, Eastern liberal establishment. Uh, but lots and lots of the same things, not exact, but lots of the same things. So let me, let me start out with Watergate and then we'll just briefly touch on, uh, on today. I believe that Nixon's landslide reelection, the 1972 reelection when he took the electoral college in every state except Massachusetts and the district, 61% of the vote against a progressive, George McGovern, uh, uh, that re-election victory was voided by a secret linking of all three branches of government. And this is what I've uncovered in the past uh, 15 years in my research. But what you had, you had a Senate select committee, the Irvin Committee, that was investigating Watergate. And the chief counsel of the Senate committee, uh, Sam Dash, taught at Georgetown Law School, where the self-appointed chief judge who was trying the cases also taught. So Dash would go down and talk with Sirica off the record without anybody else there. And we know that because he mentioned it in his book. <laughs> and we know it because Irvin's legislative aide, a gentleman by the name of Rufus Edmiston, uh, reconfirmed it within the month on film. But Sam was going down there all the time, invited Rufus to come along, and Rufus said, we shouldn't do this. This is wrong. But Sam said, no, nah, nobody knows. It's okay. So you had wow. improper communication from the Senate Select Committee to the judge. You also had improper communications from the special prosecutor to that same judge. Judge Sirica is very, very key because he appoints himself, which he can do as chief judge, to preside over both the break-in trial and the later cover-up trial. And I have evidence of at least 10 such secret meetings with the special prosecutors. Now, you don't have to have gone to law school to understand that's not kosher. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The defense counsel are supposed to be present during any of those sessions. But the defense counsel didn't even know about them. So you had secret communications between the special prosecutors and the judge. And you also had secret communications between the special prosecutors and the House Judiciary Committee, which was considering uh, Nixon's impeachment. And what they did first was send grand jury material uh, up, up to uh, the House Judiciary Committee in a sealed document called the Roadmap, that was the nickname because it was supposed to lead to Nixon's impeachment. Uh, but we didn't get to see it. I was on Nixon's defense team, and it wasn't shown to us because it was grand jury information that had to stay secret. 
and then they had the staff from the South, the uh, House Judiciary Committee come down late evenings to the special prosecutor's office where they shared more material with them. And in essence, the special prosecutors, the executive branch, staffed the House Judiciary Committee. So you had linkages of the judiciary, the Congress, and the executive branch all secretly working on voiding Nixon's reelection. Switch to today. Well, wait a minute. For what purpose? Oh, uh, uh, Nixon had had a hugely successful first term. Uh, he had just savaged the progressive candidate, George McGovern, that we characterized his campaign as acid amnesty and abortion. Uh, <laughs> and he was just, re- and he promised to raise taxes. He was just rejected at the polls. And that the, the uh, progressive, uh, they weren't called progressives then, it was the Eastern no. liberal establishment, had only one option to stop Nixon. Uh, and 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 they gummed it up, and they got they got Watergate, and they drove him from office, and they uh, convicted and imprisoned two dozen of his top aides, and we ended up with Jimmy Carter, but they could only hold it off the the um, conservative point of view because in 1980 Ronald Reagan was elected, so it was a last ditch effort by the liberal wing to stop the what we call today the red tide. If you picture back, uh, back in those days, the Democrats had been in charge of everything in Washington, D.C. since 1932. Now, there was a Republican president, Eisenhower, but he was a war hero. He wasn't political. The political guy was his vice president, Richard Nixon. So you can see how Liberal Democrats would say, if we can bump off Nixon, then we can go back to the sea of blue, which is how things ought to be. Well, of course, naturally, they have to be in charge. And if they're not, something's wrong. They're better than we are. That's right. Just (laughs) ask him. Jeff Shepard, Nixon, did he break the law? Laws were broken. Uh, There were things that are not only untoward, but illegal, correct? There are three certainties in Watergate, Victoria. One, there really was a break-in. Criminal event. They were caught red-handed. There's no question about it. Who knew is the question. Right. There really was a cover-up. John Dean ran the cover-up. And it was done to protect people who were higher-ups in the re-election campaign, the Committee to Re-elect the President, called CREEP, C-R-P, uh, uh, and hey, wait, can I ask you something? Yeah. Is that what they really called it, the acronym being CRP? But did you guys always call it creep, or was that just a contrivance of the Woodward Bernstein? Well, after they, after they picked the name uh, uh, CRP, <laughs> that was the only way you could pronounce it. <clears throat> and, of course, the opposition spelled it C-R-E-E-P. So there was no... <laughs> There's no doubt what it was called, but that's we we sometimes called it the CRP, but we lost. I mean, it was creep to everybody then. Today, gotcha. it's creep. Uh, it would okay, have been better that. if they picked a different name. Yeah, you think that that would yeah, have been yeah, something but, they'd consider? <laughs> well, uh, they already registered it before the um, 
pseudonym yeah, became popular. So okay. today on Trump's situation, they're not trying that the January 6th is a select committee of the House, not the Senate. They're not trying to void an election because Biden won. They're trying to prevent a tsunami in 2022 and 2024 because it turns out, once again, the American people aren't really enamored of the progressive agenda. And it's just, you know, you, you go down the litany of what's going wrong, and their only hope is to so poison the well with regard to Trump that the Republicans don't get the sweep that it looks like they're going to get. Right. So the January 6th committee, in its, it, they've got deadlines. The Irvin committee, the Senate Irvin committee during Watergate, they didn't have any deadline because the election had already occurred. Now, they have the Department of Justice on their side because it's a Democrat president and sure. a Democrat attorney general. Is there something untoward about that? For example, it's clear that the that the DOJ works closely with the committee and they're providing each other testimony, information, detailed documents yes. and that sort of thing. Yes. Is that, is that what wrong? I felt? And remember, my expertise is from 50 years ago and I've uncovered all these documents. Uh, the career prosecutors uh, who prosecuted the break in, convicted the people who were caught red handed and broke the cover-up, uh, they were promptly fired when the political, the politicized team came in, the special prosecutors. The career prosecutors would not give John Dean immunity. They said he was too involved and he wasn't telling them his real role in running the cover-up. So his politically connected lawyer went up to the Irvin Committee, and it was the Irvin Committee that gave Dean immunity and therefore, they presented him as their whistleblowing hero, uh, but he was anything but. He was at the heart of the wrongdoing. So you've got a real break-in, you've got a real cover-up, and then Nixon really did resign. So if you're in my shoes and you're saying, yeah, but look at these documents. Look at the corner-cutting that went on to try to take what was originally described as a third-rate burglary— Right. And turn it into something that drove Nixon from office and imprisoned two dozen of his aides. And what's so intriguing is they left a paper trail. And I've spent the last 15 years uncovering the paper trail, which is what ends up in my books. Starting eight years ago, in 2013, the first of four caches of documents, internal documents, from the special prosecutor's office, began to surface. Leon Jaworski, who was the second special prosecutor, took his sensitive files with him when he went back to Texas. And they didn't surface until after he died and he'd given them to his alma mater, a Baylor Law School. And the National Archives retrieved them, and I was the first one to see them. And they described these secret meetings they were having with Sirica. They described how John Dean's testimony, he's the principal witness against Nixon and his former colleagues, how his testimony changed in order mm -hmm. to help the special prosecutors. And then in 2015, two years later, internal documents that were kept by a Harvard professor 
named James Vorenberg. Uh, he had taken them back to Harvard. They surfaced in 2015. I was, again, the first person to see them and to appreciate what was there. And then in 2020, uh, one of the very top prosecutors, a gentleman by the name of Philip Lacavara, gave boxes of his documents to the archives. And once again, I was the first one to go through them. And they just paint, they paint a different picture from, from what we've been told. Has anyone else gone through those documents? Just Well, no, they should have. But sure, you see, the, I, I'm still in the uh, safe to ignore stage. Exactly, uh, but not I, for I, long. The, the main, mainstream media had all these programs, and they know about me. It's not that, that they don't know I exist. It's just they can't explain me. They can't dismiss me because these documents won't go away. And the, the, principal, the principal document is this roadmap, the secret grand jury report that we never saw. It finally got unsealed in 2018 by order of the court. Uh, it was my lawsuit that got it unsealed. But for the first time, 45 years later, Nixon's defense team could see what the specific allegations were against Nixon himself. And once they become public, and, and if you have enough background and you read them and you study them, which I, I'm in a unique position to do, you see they, they, uh, they misrepresented. They didn't have the facts necessary to, uh, uh, to prove their case against Nixon, so they fabricated it. And nobody caught them because it was done in secret. Now, what do you mean they fabricated? Well, um, there's a key meeting. Uh, it's Wednesday, March 21st, 1973, mm-hmm. when John Dean, who's been running the cover-up for nine months, decides he better go in and tell Nixon what's going on. And this is called the cancer on the presidency mm-hmm. meeting. It's on tape. Yeah. Pretty good tape. Pretty good tape. And he says... I wanted to come see you because you're going to have to make some pretty significant decisions and you don't know what's been going on, but people have been perjuring themselves. There's been a cover-up. And Howard Hunt, who's part of that, he's threatening to disclose stuff about what he's done for the White House if he doesn't receive money uh, within the next two days because this Friday – He's going to be sentenced and let off to prison. And he has outstanding legal bills totaling about $75,000. And he's got a family to support, and he wants $50,000 more because he'll be in jail. And so they spend an hour and a half trying to figure out what to do. And it's not Nixon's proudest moment. It's all on tape. Because they toy with the idea of paying Hunt. Now, it's very clear on the tape. The idea was, well, we'll pay him to buy some time so we can get out ahead of his story. And it's very clear that they conclude once they start to pay blackmail, there's no end to it. I mean, he asked Don Dean, how much do you think you would total? He's asking for 50 now. And Dean says a million bucks. And Nixon says... I know where we could get a million bucks. As his advocate, I'm telling you, the point he's making is it's not the amount. We could pay that money. 
but the blackmailer will never go away. Right. And Nixon well, concludes, you have to look for it, Gloria. You've got to study the tape. He concludes the only way to beat Hunt and Hunt's threat to disclose this embarrassing information is for the White House to disclose it themselves. So let's get John, let's get John Mitchell down here from New York and we'll meet and we'll decide what to do. So immediately after that meeting ends, right at noon, Nixon tells Haldeman to call Mitchell to invite Mitchell down. Mitchell can't get down that afternoon, so he's going to come down the next day. Okay? Now, here's what's intriguing, and I'm sorry to go off into the weeds like this, but this is key to the whole case. That very night, at 10 o'clock, $75,000 is paid to Howard Hunt's lawyer. So the prosecutors say, wow, we got this in the bag. Nixon learns about it at a meeting that ends at noon, and 10 hours later, the payment is made. You couldn't have a stronger circumstantial case. Nobody then or today has ever testified that Nixon told Haldeman to tell Mitchell to, to pay. But the prosecutors put together a chain of events, circumstantial, that they felt proved Nixon himself must have personally approved the payment of blackmail. Now, the one fact that eluded them was proving that Mitchell called Fred LaRue the paymaster who had the money. They'd already paid out 350000 to the defendants for legal bills and humanitarian aid, uh, and LaRue's the one who paid the 75000 that very night. They knew LaRue had spoken to Mitchell. Both had been to the grand jury. Both admitted there's this phone call. But they couldn't place the time of the phone call. And here's the note. We're right, right at the moment that counts. John Dean had informed Fred LaRue of this blackmail demand just before he went off to meet with Nixon. And LaRue said, well, I got the money, but I'm not paying it out without somebody's authorization. And Dean said, I'm out of the payment business. So there's the possibility that LaRue called Mitchell right then, right when Dean went off to see mm -hmm. Nixon. Now, if that's, and LaRue, uh, uh, Mitchell clearly approved the payment of the, uh, of the money, but not the full demand. He only approved payment of the, of the legal portion. So if it's a morning call, Nixon isn't involved in the chain of events because he didn't even know. If it's an afternoon call, your circumstantial case comes back together. Since they couldn't prove it, when the call occurred, they faked it. And that's what I've uncovered. That's what's in this latest book, The Nixon Conspiracy. They did it in secret. We didn't, we didn't know they did it, but that's what they did. Wow. So they had nothing on Nixon with respect to the cover-up and payoffs, which is really what the most illegal thing was about it. Well, the sole except, I mean, well, in, in those time, idea, time, times have changed. The criteria for impeachment has gotten very, very low. But yeah. back 50 years ago, it was believed that if you were going to void an election, deny the American people their vote, you had to prove the president was personally involved in a crime that was the equivalent of bribery or treason, which is mentioned in the Constitution. And the special prosecutor said, we got him. 
We got him. We can show beyond the shadow of a doubt he must have approved the payment. He learned about it. Ten hours later, the payment's made. Now, in the roadmap, they cite LaRue's grand jury testimony, but LaRue didn't say the call occurred in the morning. They didn't ask him because they were fearful of what he might say. In their follow-up memo, the secret memo they shared with the House Judiciary Committee that we never saw, they said it was indisputable that the call occurred in the afternoon. But then, and just for your listeners, Nixon resigns, he's pardoned, and then the cover-up trial started. So the cover-up trial is a three-month trial after Nixon. Nixon resigns in August. He's pardoned in September. The cover-up trial starts in October. LaRue testified at the cover-up trial, and after this buildup, he says, you know, to the best of my knowledge, that phone call occurred in the morning. Well, they're just astonished. This can't be. So they actually said, are you sure you didn't call him in the morning but didn't get through and he called back in the afternoon? And LaRue says, well, anything's possible. We don't have a record, but that's not my memory. My memory is I called him in the morning. And then there's three other shortcomings, too, Victor, just to hit it with a sledgehammer. (laughs) If it was the prosecutor's scenario, Mitchell should have called LaRue to inform him of Hunt's demand. But it was LaRue who called Mitchell. It was LaRue who explained the demand to Mitchell. And it was LaRue who took it upon himself to reduce the payment from 120000 which was Hunt's overall demand, to just the legal fees, which were 75000 So all of those facts tend to support LaRue's version. And that's what the prosecutors kept hidden. So, you- what, 45 years later... You learn the secret accusations against the duly reelected president were erroneous and probably deliberately so. Now, there were real illegalities. There was the break in and they were getting into the Watergate Hotel just to spy on the DNC to find out what their strategy was. Right. Well, uh, uh, one of the intriguing things is nobody knows for sure because the five were caught red handed and then they added Lydian Hunt, uh, and they were all convicted. But in order to convict them, it was not necessary to show why they were there or who approved them being there. And that remains ambiguous. There's a whole bunch of books, good books, and I call them the doubter books. Now, in any hugely significant national event, There are going to be facts that don't align. It's true of the Kennedy assassination. It's true of the landing on the moon. You know, the shadows in the wrong place. Well, there's these books that say, look, the CIA was all over this. The CIA knew and didn't tell anybody. Look, the DNC got written alert that the the party, the the campaign committee was coming after them. They knew about the break-in in advance. Look. There was a sixth guy who walked out of the Watergate and never got caught. He's died, but his name was Lou Russell. Look, the the whole purpose of the break-in had nothing to do with bugging the DNC. The purpose of the break-in was trying to get 
uh, embarrassing evidence of a, a call girl ring that might, oh, that's right. might have affected John Dean, the counsel to the president. And these books go into great detail. Oh, and, and, I do recall that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That's and, over and, the past and, few and years. Yeah. Nobody knows for sure, but there's this group, uh, Midnight Writer, who published uh-huh. a whole magazine within the last month, once again devoted to Watergate, and they go back through all this. And all these uh, intriguing inconsistencies that show we don't know. Now, I knew Gordon Liddy. I worked with him when I was a White House fellow at Treasury. And I worked with him when he and I were both on the domestic council at the White House. Uh, uh, Liddy was clearly in charge. Liddy was making these things up. You can't connect Liddy to the CIA. But it's possible that the other six were actually running it and Liddy was duped. I I don't happen to believe that. Oh, that sounds like, I mean. I I have no firsthand information. I have nothing to bring to that party of all the ambiguities surrounding the break-in. But I admit there are ambiguities. I, I gave a speech, I think it was 2010, out at the Nixon Library. And it's called Mysteries of Watergate, where I go through these other theories. And it's been, it's on YouTube. It's been viewed 100,000 times. Oh, I bet. I mean, with a, with a title like that, why not? But there, the, uh, the, it's uh, uh, Secret Agenda by Jim Hogan, Silent Coup by Len Kolodny. One came out within the last two years, Haig's Coup by Ray Locker. And there's one called uh, White House Call Girl. Doesn't happen to be Mo Biner, uh, John Dean's wife. It's her roommate, a lady named Heidi Riken who, ah. uh, according to these allegations, was running a uh, prostitution ring out of the apartment building next door. Not at the Watergate, but next door. Oh, and, and according to this theory, and I'm not, I'm not vouching for the theory, according to the theory, the Democrat National Committee was availing itself of these women of the night um. for visiting campaigners who came into town and wanted to have a good time. And that's what they were tapping. They weren't ta- the the the, uh, the the bug was really picking up calls going next door. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the building, but it, but but yeah, uh, it's, okay. it, it, it's it's the, it's the office, it's the apartment building right next door. Uh, and it's possible that stuff is true. There's smoke. But, right. but my my concentration. But the fire is that the burglars, some of whom were from Miami and were Cubans and put in the employ of whoever was paying the bills, actually broke in. Well, so uh, there uh, you go. The uh, Gordon Liddy goes over. Gordon Liddy is recruited by John Dean to develop a campaign intelligence plan. Uh, they have those today. Today we call it opposition research. You want to know all about your opponent. So you want to know where they're going to be. You want to know where their speeches are. You want where the money's coming from, what their issues are. And they, John Dean was assigned that project, and he hired Gordon Liddy. Now, the trouble is Gordon Liddy had the mind of a criminal, and he decided he would create this plan with incredible proposals, mugging, bugging, kidnapping, and prostitution. 
And he he shows up at the re-election committee because John Dean hired him, Mm -hmm. sends him over to the re-election committee, and Dean starts talking about a half a million or a million dollars for this great plan he's developing. And the people over there say, well, the only person who could approve a budget that large is the uh, director of the campaign, John Mitchell, but he's not here yet. He's still attorney general. So they go over to the attorney general's office, John Dean, Gordon Liddy, the acting head of the reelection committee, and they meet with John Mitchell and Gordon presents this crazy plan. And Mitchell doesn't approve it. He says, I don't think that's what we have in mind. But this was a surprise to Mitchell. And they're only there because the dupe who was warming the seat before Mitchell came to the re-election committee thought it was an important budget issue. So in the office of the Attorney General of the United States, they're discussing all this criminality. So it's not approved. Liddy's told, uh, uh, reduce the cost, you know, come back with revision. Comes back six or seven days later, same four people, and now mugging, prostitution, and uh, kidnapping. kidnapping aren't a part of it, but bugging is. We're going to bug the candidates. We're going to bug the DNC. Well, that's outrageous. Well, of course it is. It's illegal. Illegal as hell. Oh, yeah. Had anything like that ever been put in the employ of the Democrats or the Republicans before to get opposition research in previous campaigns? Oh, yes. Oh, Oh. yes. We, (laughs) We released, in the height of Watergate, three affidavits from former D.C. police detectives that tended to show that a top campaigner for Jack Kennedy tried to hire the wiretap expert from the D.C. Police Department to bug Nixon's hotel room where he took the week off before the first debate at the Sheraton uh, uh, Hotel in uh, Washington to prepare for the debate. Uh, and they, they had a, you know, an affidavit and they had a couple of others where they were uh, <clears throat> alleging that the Kennedy administration kept a full-time bugging expert uh, uh, on, on their staff. And if you said something adverse to Kennedy or, or did something, I mean, remember, Jack was having a ball with the ladies of the night, uh, uh, they would bug you. Uh, there was a guy who I think he got upset because it was his daughter who was getting too close, and he started uh, discussing, and they bugged his, they bugged his, his uh, phone. Hoover, the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, told Nixon that in the wanting days of the 1968 campaign, Lyndon Johnson had personally directed him to bug Nixon's campaign plan. Now, there's a dispute over whether he did it or not, mm-hmm. but there's no dispute that's what Hoover told Nixon. There's no dispute that the FBI testified before the the uh, church committee, which came about after Nixon's gone, after his people are convicted, that under Lyndon Johnson's instructions, they bugged a delegation uh, from Mississippi called the Freedom Delegation that came to the 1964 convention. They bugged Martin Luther King's home, office, and hotel rooms. 17 so different times. So, no, this, no, no. This, this is not uh, incredible illegality. Done. This is, these guys got caught. 
So that's it for part one. And in the next episode, we go even further into detail about the hearings and the axe to grind that Deep Throat had, his previous affiliations with Bob Woodward. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff to get at. Very, very interesting. And other players who wanted to get at Nixon, he goes into that as well. And the odd way that this looks so much like what the Democrats tried to do to Trump. I mean, it is astonishing. So if you think you've seen it before, you have. And don't the proceedings of the January 6th committee make you want to go, huh, I wonder, I I wonder if the same thing happened to Nixon. <laughs> wonder no more. In next week's episode, we'll go through it. Thanks for listening. Please share this. Subscribe to the podcast and do all kinds of things to spread the word about the Adult in the Room podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Adult in the Room podcast. To keep the programs you like to listen to, please rate this podcast with a fantastic five stars on your Apple podcast app every time you listen. And give me a great review. Plus, of course, subscribe to the podcast. It makes a difference with the big tech algorithm and the big tech oligarchs. And it makes us easier to find. Please get in touch with me on all the big tech stuff. Yeah, we're still there. Using the names Victoria Taft or the Adult in the Room podcast on MeWe, Parlor, Minds, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to 1A Cast for imaging, editing, and production. The fantastic song is Gospel by the March 4th Band of Portland, Oregon. Music for Antifa versus Mike Strickland is Ride or Die by Raps by RC. The Adult in the Room podcast is also a production of Flamingo Road Studios. Remember, head up, heart out, and strive to be the adult in the room. Till next time, mischief managed.